You're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic, to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation, as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency, critique, and counter-narrative. Today's discussion is with Julius Fleming, Jr., who teaches in the Department of English at University of Maryland in College Park, Maryland. He has published widely on African-American literature and culture, with particular emphasis on how cultural production functions at the very heart of political movement, mobilization, and demands. In this conversation, we discuss his new book, Black Patience, Performance, Civil Rights, and the Unfinished Project of Emancipation, which was published in late March 2022 by New York University Press. Our conversation here focuses on its key arguments about the place of theater in the civil rights movement and in the long project of Black freedom struggle. Julius, how are you today? Well, how are you? Good. I'm really uh, happy you made the time to talk about your book. Um, you know, it's a fantastic book. It's super interesting. I think it's one of these books that has a sense of innovation really at its heart. Um, that'll leave a really deep impact on uh, study of everything from the history of the civil rights movement, uh, black cultural production, literature. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm really glad we have a chance to talk about it today. I, I really loved it and can't wait for it. Uh, it's coming out in a couple of weeks, yeah. officially on yeah. Amazon. So yeah, yeah. I'm really looking forward to the splash it will make and the conversation with you today about it. Yeah, thank you. And thanks for the invitation. This is actually the first conversation I'm having about, the solo conversation I'm having about the book and also my first podcast. So thanks for having me. Sure thing. Well, it's my 19th podcast, so it's not that much more experience, but, uh, you know, these uh, conversations uh, about books, I think, are uh, are always good, especially just as they're coming out, um, yeah. they sort of see, you know, where you are in relation to the project and learn a little bit, you know, what I want sure. to start with today, but also across our conversation is learn a little bit about the origins and motivations of the projects and, sure. some, project and some of the big ideas. And so maybe just as a, as a first question, um, I want to invite you to narrate for us your way or, you know, how you came to this project. Mm -hmm. And I'm asking that because as everyone knows who's written a, who's written a book or even tried to write a book, mm -hmm. when you write a book, it's a full existential event. Like no, everything right. sets right. aside and your whole self is at stake. In that's it. right. So, so clearly we have something that motivates us to sustain us through Great. that you know so you know broadly whether it's personal intellectual ethical political just you know if you could sort of say like why this project why now what are your scholarly professional even personal motivations for the project yeah, yeah. i'm laughing at the, your, your reference to the book being having this existential connection i never kind of had bad words with my grandmother but she routinely called my dissertation which of course became the book my little essay your little essay, <laughs> my little essay. essay. <laughs> it was like fighting words even from old lady <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah so i felt like she was attacking me for the first time in life no but it started it grew out of um uh, a graduate seminar actually Actually, at the University of Pennsylvania that was taught by Thaddeus Davis, my, who went on to become my dissertation chair. Um, it was a graduate seminar called Law, Race, Narrative, uh, the 1950s. And so we really spent the seminar studying the 1950s, culture, politics, 
Um, and I became interested in the role of literature in the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. And so I read a lot about photography and television, uh, but this class was open up my eyes to other genres, other kind of literary traditions that mm -hmm. were important mm -hmm. to the cultural arm of the civil rights movement. Um, and eventually as I kind of moved into the archives and started to read more scholarship, mm -hmm. um, I realized that theater was kind of immensely important to the movement. Mm -hmm. And so I was moving in that direction. Then I went to a conference at Princeton, um, and Bob Moses, right, the famous civil rights yeah. activist, was there. And I told him what I was working on, and he said, oh, well, of course you know the Free Southern Theater. Um, he, he knew that I went to Tougaloo College in Mississippi. I, I was embarrassed to say I'd never heard of it. And he oh, said, wow. well, you have to know this theater was founded on your campus during the civil rights movement. Um, and so I went to do more research about it, and um, I, I, it was right there where it clicked for me that this would be a book about theater and the civil rights movement. You know, I find it so interesting. You know, I, I ask these questions with all these conversations. I start with this question um, because book origins, they, they, they're always, you know, I think mythically are like, you know, the grand idea came to me in a dream. <laughs> but there's so often in this moment where somebody says, you know, oh, of course you know about this and you kind of have to fake your way through That's it. That's right. Run home and like, you know, Google on your, That's you right. know, on your phone as you're in the taxi. Um, that's right. Yeah, I mean, I remember, you know, I had some, you know, small idea, and I was putting away groceries and talking about it, and my spouse was like, you should write a book about that. And I went and did it, you know. It's like, right. it, it like it was not some, uh, you know, grand event. But, yeah. and also it's nice when, you know, graduate school can be, you know, more than a certification. And for sure, <laughs> for sure, for sure. But why the civil rights movement? You know, what do you, you know, I have to say that if you were to have pitched to me abstractly I want to write a book about the civil rights movement I would be like you know man is there anything that has more yeah. about it this seems kind of crazy yeah. um, but of course the book is not the same old civil rights movement yeah. but like, what drew you you know to write to, to revisit the civil mm -hmm. rights movement I mean you said a little bit already but um, you know why why do that and what do you think your book opens up about yeah. the civil rights movement that's new for sure for you know I'm, I'm hearing your question why write another book about the civil rights movement it was a question i heard often in graduate school yeah, from advisors sure. and others um and i had to really sit with that question right why another book about the civil rights movement a movement we we think we know so well right yeah. um and so a part of my investment in turning to the movement through theaters um, because i think that theater opens up new knowledge about the movement that we don't mm -hmm. um possess when we kind of concentrate our studies of the movement on specific archives. Yeah. And so one of the things I try to argue in the book is that um, by expanding the archive of the civil rights movement to theater, we learn new things about not only the kind of cultural front of the movement, but also the politics of the civil rights movement. And so one of the things that was happening in scholarship, especially while I was in graduate school, is this kind of pivot to the long civil rights movement framework. Mm -hmm. um, and a part of what those scholars were arguing in that scholarship is that somehow the classical or conventional phase or classic phase of the movement, which is about 1954 Brown v. Board of Education mm -hmm. to around 68 King's death, was somehow not radical, that it was somehow too caught up in liberal democracy, um, and yeah. that if we really want to, of course, um, locate the radicalism of the civil rights movement, we have to go back to the 1930s and the 1940s, and specifically we have to go to leftist um, political orientation or to communism in particular. Mm -hmm. um, and so I took issue with that because, of course, I'm from Mississippi and I know personal stories of people who fought boldly and valiantly during the civil rights movement, who risked jobs, lives, homes for that movement um, kind of 
embodying a definition of radicalism. So part of what I was after was how can, and how did theater, right, as I was discovering in the archive, tell a story about this phase of the movement that we had so easily dismissed? How did it tell a story about that phase of the movement that actually allows us to locate uh, different kinds of radicalism that we perhaps thought were not there? Yeah, no, I think that's interesting. I mean, I, it's this thing that bothers me all the time about the sort of, I mean, it's more of a soundbite, but that yeah. sort of hot take on the civil rights movement yeah, is yeah, not yeah, radical. Yeah. It's just it's bizarre in yeah, the sense no, of, like, like you said, people put their lives in homes yeah, at absolutely. risk. I, I'm like, who among us yeah, who no, offer right. that critique are that courageous, right? That's right, that's right. But, you know, I, you know, what you were just saying goes, like, so much deeper in the sense of, like, if we have this binary of a sort of liberal democracy ideal, you know, king, right. et cetera, or sort of, you know, radical leftist, communist, internationalism of, you know, right. Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture, right. and sort of that, that Southern Black Power crew. Um, or, you know, I think people have sort of rehabilitated, you know, Robert Williams, mm -hmm. with Negroes with Guns book, um, you know, really thinking about it that way. But I, lo I love the way this splits that difference, yeah. really. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe it's, like, talk a little bit about that, like what it means to, to, to read this archive. Yeah. And maybe even just a note about the archive, you know, are these unpublished things that you're talking right. about or just things we've forgotten that have been published, gone out right. of print. But, right. you know, a little bit about the archive, but also, like, how you understand that that third it's third position, not in a political science sense, but yeah. a, a third sort of way into the movement. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for that question. And a part of what I was interested in um, as I transitioned from dissertation to book is how do we not go to those objects, those um, political actors, cultural actors who immediately announce themselves as radical? Mm. So mm. a part of what happens in um, long civil rights movement scholarship is that King becomes a kind of um, kind of object of attack. You know, he represents the quintessential conventional civil rights figure, so we sort of have to dethrone him. Somehow we invest in hagiography if we praise him too much. Mm -hmm. And so I actually start with King, right, and I'm interested in this notion of black patience. And King says so many radical things about the history of black people waiting that if we really sit with them, they, 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 they are hardly um, kind of entangled in some hardcore liberal democracy, and they often are radical. And so throughout the book, for example, I look at Duke Ellington, right, and a play that he produced for the Emancipation Proclamation Centennial. And of course, this is someone who is on record saying, essentially, that black people need to be patient and that black people weren't ready for freedom uh, around the mid-20th century. Hmm. At the same time, he has this play about the civil rights movement where he's um, kind of um, recounting Project C in Birmingham, the, the famous civil rights demonstration, where he's saying essentially is that black people should not wait. And he's recounting how um, the, the sheriffs are being violent toward black people. And he's, you know, telling a story that doesn't just involve King, right? Although the, the song, for example, that I write about is called King Fought the Battle of Jericho, mm -hmm. right? Playing on the biblical narrative. He cites babies. He cites freedom writers. He cites everyday black folk who made that civil rights campaign possible. So part of what I want to do is to kind of turn to these figures like Ellington, or even someone like Amiri Baraka, right, who was homophobic, but if we turn to his one-act plays, we can see that he was also deeply invested in kind of queer sexuality and this relationship to the movement. And so a part of what I'm after then is how, when we go to the archive, or when we diversify the archive that we use to think about the civil rights movement, mm -hmm. we, we reach different conclusions. Yeah, that's super interesting to think about. 
you know, somebody like Ellington, who in music is yeah. the equivalent of a sort of king, right? That's in right. Sense of like, That's right. Like, you know, he's in the pantheon of, of, of African-American music, but yeah. you're also saying, and Baraka as a poet, right. but you're saying that these, these, these art pieces, right. right, these aesthetic objects, actually direct us not towards the greatness of the author, that's towards right. the people. That, that's right. And, and you know, people in the press when, for example, Ellington was awarded the NAACP's highest honor, the Spangarn Medal, and the press, you know, said things like, oh, he must be receiving it for his music, not his political activism. Hmm. Well, one journalist said, um, I've never known a, 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 a growl and a moan to free people. Hmm. to give people freedom um, and so you know there were these ways in which Ellington was seen as people called him in the press Uncle Tom step and fetch it but yet if we go to this theatrical production that he staged for the Century of Negro Progress exhibition which was a celebration of 100 years of freedom for black people we get a very different kind of um, vision of the civil rights movement as Ellington thought about it so thinking about that vision of the civil rights movement I, I mean there were a couple ways that that I that I had I had a sort of zoomed out sort of big take on the book, yeah, right? Yeah, sure, sure. One was that this is a sort of un not sort of this is an untapped, underread, under theorized, or not, maybe entirely untheorized and unread um, aspect or thread in the civil rights movement, right? And so, you know, that's you know that's one of the standard and I think actually quite high and admirable aims of scholarship right is, is to pick up something that we haven't thought about let us think about it for you know 180 200 pages right, right, and right. then we walk but I thought the book also maybe went slightly in a different direction and said and you use the phrase uh, the heart of the civil rights movement that you want to place theater at the heart of the civil rights movement and I wondered how you think we should think after your book, how we should think about the civil rights movement. Is this like a, a recentering or maybe mm -hmm. even induction of like a fragmentation that mm. there is no center? Mm. Or is this a recentering on it? And I think it's especially interesting in light of what you just said yeah. about how, you know, Ellington's piece sort of opening this window to everyday people and right. sort of the vernacular life of the right. movement. And, you know, that's a heart question, right. like literally in the, 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 the organic sense of like what drives the blood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a great question. I think, um, so of course, you know, when uh, kind of civil rights historiography cut its teeth, um, you know, as an intellectual enterprise, it was centered in the South. And so there was this move to the North. And so a part of what I'm interested in the book is that there is no kind of geographical, pure geographical um, center of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. So some of the chapters are set, for example, the Free Southern Theaters in Mississippi and Louisiana. Mm -hmm. um, I have a chapter, the Baraka plays are staged in New York, they're staged in Los Angeles, um, they're staged in Detroit. Um, the Century of Negro Progress exhibition where Duke, Duke Ellington performs um, is set in Chicago. There's a Hansberry production of Raising the Sun that's in Indianapolis, and also a chapter that's um, a play that was written by a black expatriate playwright, Paul Carter Harrison, that is um, produced in Amsterdam. And so I think a, a part of that kind of geographical diversity is to just remind us that the civil rights movement was always um, geographically complex and diverse, and there was this huge kind of, you know, international, transnational network of cultural and political activity um, that we cannot reduce to any region or e even any nation state for, for that matter. And I think we've arrived at that conclusion, right, through the long civil rights movement and other kind of innovations in civil rights historiography. Mm -hmm. But if we were to go back to that classical phase, right, and to look at it through different archives and to take different approaches, I think we could have arrived at that answer without the kind of 
the, the, the kind of decentering of the classical phase that ultimately happened. And it really, <clears throat> those just even the way you use this, you know, like a phrase like international resonance or international sort of energy movement, motivation, yeah, yeah, yeah. and so mobilization, even just when you use that phrase, I found myself thinking like, um, oh, like the independence era in Africa, yeah. right? Independence era in the Caribbean. Right. Because I think we go to those grand narratives so That's quickly, right. and I had to like correct myself. I'm talking to Julius about it, yeah. about it <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. you know, because you know, and I think that you know, this is one of my hopes for the book because it's it's. I have to say also, it's really well written. Like, it's, well, thank you. It's you know, it's it's one of these books I think is going to touch on so many different kinds of scholars oh, research and life thank you um, let's hope <laughs> yeah I, like uh, john said this <laughs> yes i said it therefore it has to happen <laughs> but um uh and it comes out in paperback so you know people yeah. people can buy it um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's the new book economy that's now. right so if it comes out only in hardback you have to hope somebody uploads it to a pirate right, site right right but um but uh, you know that I, th I think one of the effects of touching so many different kinds of discourse is the way it eschews these grand narratives mm -hmm. in the in the interest of you know grand narratives about like the the era of independence and the, and the sort of second wave of emancipation right, right, sort right, of thing right. and instead by looping it through cultural production and and the travel of cultural production right. it's a totally different story to tell and that's why I asked about like at the heart of the civil rights movement right. or is this like a relocation of, of how we ought to be thinking about it or does it just have a sort of deconstructive effect of like now there is no center i mean i guess every reader has to kind of work through that but i'm wondering you as an author how you think yeah yeah for sure that's actually a really good question <clears throat> and i think um when i say something like the heart of the civil rights movement I think what I'm trying to move toward is that we should include theater as kind of impulsively and naturally as we would include something like photography and television. Mm -hmm. um, so in other words, like how do we make theater a part of our methodologies, right, for doing civil rights historiography, yeah. uh, for, for kind of cultural studies of the civil rights movement? Um, because I think it adds such value. So that's what I mean. How, do, how does it become a kind of a part of our intellectual common sense is what I would say. I like intellectual common sense, and I, I really like it also as methodology. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I just think, like, you know, if someone was to ask me, like, John, can you teach a class on the civil rights movement, which no one would because it's not my area. <laughs> but immediately I think, like, Taylor Branch, and he's yeah, got right, huge, right, right. like, right, right, like right. big narrative histories. Right. But your book made me think, like, well, well, you could do a lot on the history of the civil rights movements through movement through literary and cultural studies yeah, methods and the, 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 the book lays out absolutely yeah absolutely let me ask you about your title first of all i have to um i don't know if it was a struggle that you had you don't have to say yeah. uh with nyu press or if they just let you do the title and subtitle yourself yeah. um i love titles mm -hmm. i also um have had my titles worked over by editors yeah, every yeah, single yeah. time right. um but i like that they didn't make you put civil rights in the title mm. you know they would you could you could put it in the uh, all those evocations in the subtitle yeah. but titles you know especially when they're they're deliberately undertaken right tell like their own kind of story um, so I want to ask you about really two parts uh, the title black patients right. you just talk a little bit about where this for I mean, you mentioned you know, um, you know Ellington's evocation of, of being patient uh, early in, in his life or early in his commentary um, 
but also just, you know, hear you talk a little bit about the title, but also the part of the subtitle, The Unfinished Project of Emancipation, right. and right. how you want us to hear both of those, um, and uh, especially that unfinished project of emancipation. But really, Black Patience, that's the title of the book, it's the right. thread that holds it together. Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, the, the title of the dissertation um, that this grew out of was Performing Civil Rights. Um, and so civil rights certainly feature more prominently in the title there. And I'll be honest, um, I remember my dissertation committee, you know, especially my chair, kind of saying, you know, hey, Julius, um, this is really good. You have a wonderful archive here, but you still need to do a bit of work to figure out what argument you're making about this archive. Yeah. You're kind of theoretical, um, you know, connective tissue that links each chapter. And so during my postdoc, I really started to think about that. And in the dissertation, I was writing a lot about time, the importance mm -hmm. of time and space to the civil rights movement. And, and, and so I, I was kind of especially interested in time. And what I found in each chapter, in each archive, is that black people were constantly saying, this country continues to ask us to wait. We refuse to wait. Uh -huh. And I also constantly saw people from William Faulkner saying black people go slow, to um, Dwight Eisenhower, to Kennedy, to Robert Kennedy. And so there was this kind of, even people who were seen as quote unquote friends of the Negro would issue this call to be patient or to take a gradualist approach to freedom. And so I was actually just, um, as they would say in Mississippi, just tickled to pieces mm -hmm. by how bold black people were in saying, we will not wait for our freedom. And so that's where um, black patience comes from, right? This, this kind of historical, um, continuity regarding black people waiting for freedom and also the, the intimate knowledge of those who are acting, knowing that that freedom likely will not arrive at least in the form that they presented it to um, black people. Yeah. No, I, I just that uh, uh, taking those utterances seriously as not just like bold statements but as as theoretical self-articulation yeah, for sure. For which sure. is what the book does and, sure. and I appreciate that so much. I mean it's Part of my sort of interest as a theorist generally of, of taking, you know, everyday life or vernacular life seriously as philosophy, no, seriously right. as cultural theory that's and right. political uh, commentary and so forth. Right. And, you know, that, I mean, that's what the title of the book does. Yeah. You know, as you just said, it takes takes these utterances people had and said, like, this isn't just someone talking shit. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, this is someone sure. saying, for like, sure. here's who we are. That's right how we're mobilized in the world, what we want from the world, and where our very existence. And for me, that's so important for black study. You know, the first chapter is about to the, the, the subtitle, mm -hmm. The Unfinished Project of Emancipation. This group of, of artists and, and, and politicians and thinkers who 100 years after emancipation are really sitting with the question of what is the nature of black freedom? What is our political condition? And they really think carefully about this question and the answer that most of them arrive at is that we aren't slaves anymore. Um, we aren't total citizens, we don't have complete citizenship, but we're somewhere in between, right? And in the archive, I found one uh, observer who actually said we're part slave, part free. Um, and so I think in our theories of blackness and black ontology, a part of what we have to do more is to think about history, to think about archives, and to think about the voices of black people, right? Mm -hmm. Who have, as you, you just noted, who have not been sitting on their thumbs, twiddling their thumbs, kind of allowing other people to impose modes of being on them. They've been very invested in theorizing their own being. Mm -hmm. And so a part of that unfinished project of emancipation comes from black people's own recognition that emancipation legally happened, right? But that the kind of 
social political um, realization of that emancipation is still wanting and still lacking. They realize that much more work had to be done. So what do you think, just, I mean, this in, in some ways is just a, a sort of word association or phrase association yeah. question, but, you know, the unfinished uh, project of emancipation versus, say, the long march to freedom. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you, are these just two different phrases, or do you think, because, and as I say, for me, like, long march to freedom, I mean, I, I think that's a sort of common, right, you right, know, right. civil rights history sort of phrase, right, and right, right. long civil rights um, the march, you know, the right. protest, the big figure leading the protest, That's and right. freedom as like an American ideal. I do think that word emancipation, because of the Emancipation Proclamation, right. Right. it r- really resonates very differently. And I wondered if, if that resonance difference between unfinished project of emancipation, long march to freedom, I mean, you, you know, I'm just using that phrase myself, but yeah, yeah, yeah. if that difference is something that, that you really wanted to drive home in the subtitle, but also in the book. For sure. Um, so throughout the book, um, one of the things I spend a bit of time kind of being honest about is that some of the same people that I'm calling radical um, are sometimes um, kind of entangled with state power. Mm-hmm. They're sometimes entangled with liberal democracy and sometimes have like liberal democratic visions of black political futures. Um, and so m- many of their kind of black freedom dreams, as they were, many of their political aspirations are rooted in a kind of emancipation centered vision of what freedom should be for black folk. Mm -hmm. So in other words, this is what you promised us when you emancipated us and eventually, in some ways, um, promised citizenship. And so the long long march toward freedom, I think, similarly captures that. But I think there's something about emancipation that, um, and the unfinished project of of emancipation that seeks to hold accountable the nation for breaking a, a, a kind of legal promise that it made to black people years ago that still has not been realized. I love that. I think that's exactly right. I mean, the way freedom resonates is like the promise of the country. You know, you yeah, kind of get yeah. into like the hope of America rhetoric. Right, right, right. Emancipation and unfinished project is a little bleaker. Yeah, know, yeah. In the sense of, yeah. bleaker in the sense of like people are being held accountable for something because it's... Yeah. It's going to resonate back to Lincoln. <laughs> and, and, and they're very, I mean, that you mentioned Lincoln is so interesting. One woman, her name is um, um, Edith Sampson. She's a black judge in Chicago who helped to organize the Emancipation Proclamation Centennial. And she not only says, like, you know, we still are part slave, part free. But she said, you know, if you will, audience, go with me and, and let's analyze the difference between Lincoln's language in the Gettysburg Address and Lincoln's language in the Emancipation Proclamation. <laughs> and she's actually tracing a kind of affective posture I mean, comparing the affective posture in both, and she's essentially saying, we can tell from the outset that Lincoln's not really serious about full emancipation from, mm-hmm. from the tone and tenor and the grammar of, of this document. And so they're really getting into the nitty-gritty to figure out the origins and the kind of afterlives of the kind of limited forms of emancipation black people have been able to realize. And that's why, like, rhetorical theory, literary analysis yeah, yeah, is yeah. actually important. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. what you said, it's like you can tell by the tone. You, right. know, you can look at the... The rhetoric of the speech and that's right. something that's different than like it happened in this moment sort of one-dimensional i never know if it actually exists yeah, yeah, right. one-dimensional historiography of like well he said this that's right but um yeah so that's it it's, that's yeah i just find that difference between freedom and emancipation um so interesting i mean in my own classes i always say emancipation and I've noticed for years how much that gets under students' skin, mm. like in productive ways. Mm. But they're like, well, when you say emancipation, or this is a struggle for emancipation, that sounds like we're at the precipice of breaking out of slavery. Right. But right. you're talking about, you know, 
Huey Newton in 1972 or Elaine Brown in 78. And I'm like, yeah, but, you know, that's emancipation supposed to evoke something that doesn't genuflect anything about the nation. That's right. Absolutely. I would agree 100%. Emancipation's about yeah. this line that the nation drew. <laughs> you know, it's That's a different right. sense of responsibility. That's right. That's right. And I think you know because it's so rooted in in law and legislation and those black people actually have standards for what emancipation should be. And so they, when they're in context during the civil rights movement, where you know restaurants are still segregated, schools are still segregated, black people are being bombed, black people are still being murdered by police. You know, um, tackled with cattle prods. They actually have um, a kind of um, kind of legal infrastructure that they could go to and say hey this according to you know at least federal law should not be happening Mm -hmm. Um, and so they're able of course to go to the courts and all kinds of things to make those arguments that are rooted in the kind of emancipatory visions that the nation concocted in the 19th century so let me um, ask about sort of your sensibility in the book and sort of orientation Um, in this way you know the book it 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 gives close readings and characterizations and engages, as you say, with a sort of forgotten archive of, yeah. of the movement and of the moment, um, which, I, which I think is, is the real like material grounds for the book, and that kind of makes it immovable and once someone mm-hmm. reads it in the sense like you can't ever look away from mm-hmm. what you've shown us. Right, and right. I, you know, I think that's always important about books that are trying to shift a discourse, right? That it's, you know, you're not, this is not Julius Fleming's thoughts. <laughs> it's, you know, looking at these things and giving yeah. a, having a reckoning with them as a right. scholar. But it's also a book that has uh, a very uh, serious theoretical tre- mm-hmm. uh, thread and, and uh, backdrop to it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And all, you know, all books do at some level, like you know, consciously or semi-consciously. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to ask really that, uh, about that, how you would characterize your own theoretical orientation right. in relation to the book. And I ask because you know, one of the things that theory does, it's not just a set of problems that debates within itself it's not simply an abstract discipline it is and i think that's perfectly fine that's right that's that's my entire profession (laughs) but but also what theory does in 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 reading is allow us to see something in what we read that if it were not for the theory we wouldn't be able to see it's like a, a like a um a finish that you put on wood that draws out the grain that's right that was hidden you know and so you know what's that finish what's that theory, theoretical orientation, how would you characterize your own in this book? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So I I would say that for me, as I was writing the book, I was interested in two things, bringing my own kind of theoretical orientation to the book. And so I think I was really trained as a kind of historicist uh, in Mm -hmm. graduate school, but also somewhat really interested in social theory and its relationship to blackness and, and, and to race. Um, so that was one part of it, bringing that to bear on the archive, but also allowing the archive to theorize itself or to recognize where objects and individuals in the archive were theorizing. So really bringing these things together, and I think this is how I arrived at black, the notion of black patients, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so a part of what the book wants to do theoretically is to ask why are we so invested in social theory and in black studies in space? Um, even as time has been so vital to black experience, mm-hmm. to black thinking, um, from the moment you know those those uh, Africans were enslaved and forced to wait, you know, um, on, on land 
but also forced to wait in the bellies of ships, forced to wait on auction blocks. This is, you know, space is always there, but time is also absolutely essential to, to this mm. experience. And so I wanted to kind of theoretically um, make time more central to the way we do black studies. And a part of what I, you know, try to do there is to kind of coin this phrase black time studies as a mm. way of, of moving in that direction. At the same time, I was interested in how American studies and black studies in particular um, are so fixated on the past and also the future. And so there's lots of work on history and memory. There's lots of work on Afrofuturism, um, but we don't think as much about the present. And, and in your you know, discipline, philosophy, I was actually interested in all these philosophers who were you know, kind of interested in making presentist you know, study something bad, right? something that mm -hmm. we don't do. Um, and so I wanted to really take seriously the importance of the present for black folk, um, people whose pasts are kind of laden and traumatic um, and whose futures are uncertain, right? Because those promises don't ever really materialize in the way that, that they, they've been articulated or expressed. And so I wanted to take seriously this, this the, the, the present as an important temporality, of course, for black cultural production, but also for black politics, right? And, and black uh -huh. political possibility. Um, and a part of what I wanted to do was to go back to some of the key thinkers like Lauren Bellant, um, who talks about you know cruel optimism, and and she particularly theorized in terms of kind of 1980s neoliberalism. Mm -hmm. But to think about for Black folk how that kind of logic of cruel optimism, right? What keeps us hoping even as we know the object of optimistic attachment won't arrive? What keeps us hoping, right? Mm -hmm. That has a much earlier history for Black people, or even someone like um, Jose Munoz, right? who is interested, rightly so, I think, in kind of critical idealism and hope um, and the future. Because he says, and I think rightly so, that for queer people, the future is often denied. But he calls the present and the process um, a quagmire and a prison house. Right? Hmm. But if we think about that logic of freedom now, if we think about that refusal to wait for freedom and what was going on in the civil rights movement and why the now became such an important temporality for black culture and politics, we have to revisit that notion of the present as a prison house. So theoretically, yeah. what I wanted to do is to kind of, kind of say that when we do social theory, what happens when we actually root those theories in the experiences of black folk and in the experiences of black archives and how does that shift the, the nature of our conversation? I love that shift from <clears throat> thinking about space and the black experience and time, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. I think, you know, I, you know, this is more in a sort of, you know, sort of trending rhetoric, but, you know, there, there's been, it's been like a decade or so at this point of this phrase, black bodies. That's right. right. That's which right. is space, That's right? right? That's and, right. you know, one of the... Um, critiques or objections to that phrase is like you know we're talking about people with that's lives right, right? right and sort of that lives versus static bodies um like how to think very deeply about that when you were just talking about that shift in the book from from space to time yeah it really is then the shift from like how to understand you know the the movement of of african-american history in this case as uh, about the manipulation of bodies, right? Yeah, as you yeah, said, yeah. like, you know, waiting, right. you know, waiting at the door of no return, right. waiting in the belly of the ship, right. waiting in the auction block, waiting right. on the plantation for emancipation, right. waiting for civil rights. Right. You know, the, that movement of bodies is how, like, sort of, it's like the way sort of demographic study has sure. become our tropes, sure, right? Sure, People sure, don't sure. do demographic studies, but our rhetoric is so much that sort of demographic movement of bodies. Sure. But once you introduce time, as you were saying, it's all of a sudden it's like people, when people live in time, 
right? They do live in the present. That's right. That's right. You know, there's no time like the present. You know, if not now, when? That's right. You know, uh, we're tired of being patient. We're tired of waiting. Right. Those are windows into how, you know, whatever the movement of bodies. Right. That's, right. that's a very partial story, if not a completely false narrative. Absolutely. Even. Absolutely. And I think so much of the theater in that period, for example, Lorraine Hansberry's The Reads in the Sun, which is probably the most famous black play, right? Um, not only produced on Broadway, but also was produced in black communities around the country, especially during Centennial Year. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that play ends with, of course, Hansberry wrote alternative endings, but that play was celebrated by critics as somehow showing the potential of U.S. democracy, even for black folk, right? The possibilities of U.S. democracy and the promises. But it's like we I, we see that family about to move into an integrated neighborhood, but within the dramatic present, we never actually see them get to that neighborhood. Interesting, right? Yeah. And it's this this kind of moment of being in the middle of thing, things. And in Medius Ray, right? There's a future looming on the horizon. There's a traumatic past, right? The father has died. He's been worked to death. They lost the insurance money. They're living in the ghetto. And so black people, you know, Hartman calls it, Cynthia Hartman calls it the space of being betwixt and between. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think a part of what what I call Afro-presentism tries to do is to not lament that space, right? To be critical of it and the conditions that produce it, but to also ask what do black people do in this space between the past and the future, right? Recognizing that the future might never come. Even as they're arguing for you know, um, more humane black political futures. Um, so I think Hansberry in, in A Raising the Sun just really captures that space of being betwixt and between, sort of both the violences that produce it, but also how black people take it up as an important kind of cultural moment of kind of, or, or inspiration for cultural production, but also an important kind of grammar of, of black politics. There is something about theater that kind of embodies this, right? It's a document yeah. that anyone can buy, Absolutely. you know, and read and produce. But anyone who's been to, you know, even a couple of theater productions yeah. knows, like, the the performance of it. You know, you talk about performing Black Freedom is the original uh, title uh, of the dissertation. But the, that, you know, what performance does is it has a, a, a strange temporality because it's That's about right. something from the past, That's something right. somebody wrote. Maybe That's it's right. Hansbury in, in 2022 right. or Hansbury, you know, six months after. Right? Right. But, right. but it doesn't right. matter. It's a document right. that, that exists you know, once it's published as, as a remnant of the past. That's right. That's you know, right. literally it becomes part of, the, of our archive. But every performance is in the present. And That's right. you can say, you know, you and I can say we saw a play, and I say I saw it on Wednesday, you say I saw it on Friday. You know, in the present, the moment we saw it actually means something. That's right. That's right. And I think, you know, if we go to some of the productions, for example, part of what I'm interested in in the book is also showing the diversity of black political thinking the yeah. diversity of approaches to the civil rights movement. And so at some productions, there were you know people in the audience who absolutely loved it. There were people like Fannie Lou Hamer, who was like, you know, they're performing Waiting for Godot in the Cotton Field. And she's like, absolutely, this play is, is everything, right? Black people are the ones who've been waiting too long. At other productions, you know, some of the children in the audience are throwing spitballs at the stage in the Mississippi Delta because they're so bored. Or some <laughs> yeah. people some people walk out wow. because they're like, we don't understand this play. Um, at one production, um, a man who owned a little shack in the Delta, um, so the play was being produced on the back porch of a shack. The man next door turned on his lawn more than the entire production to sort of drown out, drown out the voices, right? Amazing. Um, and so I think a part of what live performance also allows us to do is to kind of, and, and through audience reception in particular, is to really take the temperature of like what is, 
how have black people thought about politics? How have they thought about black political futures? Mm -hmm. And I think we really are able to kind of locate some nuance there that that prevents us from reducing um, black politics to these kind of conventional tropes that we often go to. Yeah. Let me ask you about the the theater and and you know locations of performance and and ask sort of what it what it means to you and I, I wanted to ask it sort of in this frame yeah right it's like you know you talk about you know the, you know something being you know performed in New York City on Broadway right. in Europe right. right these sort of you know every playwright these are their sort of aspirational dreams in terms of fame and the world stage. Right. But also, as you just said, you know, waiting for Godot in a, in a cotton field. Right. And lots of in-between. You know, you've mentioned before, you know, Indianapolis. Right. Right. Cleveland, Detroit. Right. Um, but also these big international stages of, of fame and, and renown or whatever. Um, and one way to sort of take that or sort of think about that is, uh, you know, it's sort of, I guess, my impulse when I see that schema is to sort of fold it into... This com- to a conversation about high art and vernacular culture mm-hmm, or something, mm-hmm. right? Um, and you know, this is you know, it's like one of my like major concerns as a, as a thinker and writer, mm-hmm. and for so much of the f- of, of you know, black studies is about mm-hmm. that, about the you know, what is vernacular culture mm-hmm. in relation to, high- but it's not really that in the right. sense, like you know, you know, waiting for Godot. I mean, that's uh, as important globally, you know, at least in the North Atlantic world. That's right. Uh, a play as you can find, and it's being performed in a place where someone could start up a lawnmower, or kids right. could spit, you know, do spitballs to, um, to, <laughs> to disrupt the play. I don't even know, like, uh, that, that kind of thing. I'm both, like, enraged on the part of the, ac- on the side of the actors, <laughs> right. but I also think it's hilarious. Because there's a part of me that's still kind of a little kid asshole. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> like, that's right. And I'm like, wait, no, Ditto. this is important political work. That's right. But how do you, like, think about those various geographies? Because really the high art, you know, vernacular culture thing just doesn't work. Because yeah. it's a totally different story that's being told. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And um, throughout the book, I realized that a part of what was going on is that black people were reaching for whatever creative, expressive outlet they could get to share their cultural and political visions of what they wanted black people's futures to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so whether that was on Broadway or whether that was in a cotton field uh, in a regional, black radical regional theater, um, they took full advantage of those opportunities. I think a part of what I was interested in, so what I argue in the book in terms of black theatrical aesthetics and black performance, is that whether we're in LA or you know Detroit or New York or in Mississippi, a part of what happens to all of these plays is that they're constantly under threat, they're constantly under siege, yeah. and they all in some ways die early deaths. So part of what I'm interested in the book is how we, we, we shouldn't only think black ontology, but we should think the ontology of black performance, right? Mm. This is a huge question in performance studies, the ontology of performance. And we as performance studies scholars have recognized that disappearance and ephemerality are important to the field. You were just talking, for example, about if you see a play on Wednesday, it's very different if I see it on Friday. So in some ways, the performance you saw has disappeared by the time I get there on Friday. Mm -hmm. But what I also want to argue is that for black theater and performance in particular, disappearance and ephemerality have a kind of different valence, right? When... For example, Blues for Mr. Charlie, which is a very popular canonical play, they had to fight what, for what Baldwin called the life of the play because people were so offended by his racial message. Tickets weren't selling. Um, the producers tried to shut it down several times. Celebrities came in and raised enough money to keep it running. 
In Chicago and Detroit, the Vice Squad um, planted themselves in the audience of Amiri Baraka's plays, and they eventually shut it down uh, mm. in both cities because of his quote-unquote sexual, which is to say queer content. Mm -hmm. In Mississippi, uh, those plays of the Free Southern Theater were bombed. So, uh, you know, wherever we are in the United States, a part of what the conclusion I reach is that um, the ontology of black theater and performance is very similar to the ontology of black people, which is that it's constantly okay. under threat, right? And so black people have to find ways for the survival of, of this genre, whether it be high art or low art, the commonality is that they're under threat, mm -hmm. even as they do radical political work. Now, I also think that, you know, the, I mean, it's part of just repeating a lot, some of what you said, but, um, the fact that it's radical political work is also what makes it, you know, something in the Netherlands, Absolutely. in the Mississippi cotton field, you know, it, and in some ways it kind of inverts that. Right? That's right. It's like That's that performance, right. you know, both under threat, New York City, right. Chicago under threat, um, is is this thread, but it's also like re like 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 the emphasis on theater does That's in right. terms of our understanding of the civil rights movement. It like either recenters or just fully decenters the entire discourse for about sure. performance. For because, sure. You know, once it's talking about like, you know, political significance and mobilization and, and meaning, you know, uh, what could be what could be more vital and intense than the cotton field in Mississippi in the nineteen sixties. That's right, that's right. Yeah. And I think theater as a genre also was kind of well suited for the civil rights movement. I think often about, you know, the march they could plan, you know, marches, sometimes surprise marches. Um, kind of um and they could happen sometimes very quickly, right? Mm -hmm. There would be preparation. Theater was very much the, the same way. You could stage your production rather quickly, draw an audience, right? And in these little rural towns, for example, um where there wasn't, they, the theaters often comment on how many people in the Mississippi Delta had not ever seen a TV. And many of them could not read, they were illiterate, so they um, couldn't read newspapers. And so theater was often their kind of primary source of information for the kind of global state of black politics. Um, and so I also want to like take seriously the idea of theater as a technology, right? Mm -hmm. Theater as a kind of source of information um, that was actually crucial to black people understanding what was the nature, the, the more expansive, the broader nature of their, their conditions in their local geographies, but also beyond those. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Let me ask you, uh, sort of, um, I guess in some ways is a, a sort of a zoom out question, but mm -hmm. it's also the heart of the book, and you've, you've spoken to this a little bit, but... Um, to bring back this this um, this term identity, right? Mm -hmm. That one of the things that the book wants to link is time, yeah. which you've spoken of, uh, black patience, um, which obviously you've spoken about, and identity, mm -hmm. like to run those three things together. Mm -hmm. um, I just wanted to ask you, like, what's what's at stake in that moment of identity, and how does it mobilize black patients in time mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. sort of what are its implications because once you talk about identity now you really are getting into this sort of deep existential dimension of of all of this work of time yeah 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 so i think essentially what, what i want to argue is that um time has been at the center of the constitution of black subjects mm -hmm. um and uh, also of black political ontology um and so of course um you know, as we've talked about, time is at the heart of debates about black citizenship. When should it happen? When should rights happen? When should a civil rights act happen? When should a voting rights act happen? Mm -hmm. And in many ways, we'll still, we'll still <laughs> having this debate, right, with the voting rights act still caught up in all kinds of BS on Capitol Hill right now. Um, and so it's always this question of timing that is so important to black people's political ontologies and, and futures and visions. But I'm also interested in the book, I talk about 
um, for example, the importance of time specifically for black queer folk. Mm-hmm. Right, and so I write a chapter about Baraka's what I call his Black Queer Trilogy, which is a group of of civil rights plays that he wrote in the early 1960s. And so in that chapter, part of what I'm interested in is how Baraka always is known as this Black Power guy. Mm-hmm. But after the B period, he actually um, says that he's involved in the civil rights movement, and he writes these plays that are, you know, conspicuously civil rights plays. Um, but a part of what I'm interested in there is how time inflects black queer experiences so there in all of these plays there are these um uh, black males who are not queer identified yet they engage in queer sexual behaviors mm-hmm. and a part of what happens is that there's something about that moment of the present where they consummate this sexual relationship that cannot be preserved into the future because to do so would i out them as a queer subject right and so i don't want to endorse that kind of um posture toward Mm -hmm. queerness which is to say that we should just traffic in it in the moment and then kind of discard it for the future but there's something about that the present that moment of the now um that has a certain salience right Mm -hmm. um and for those subjects who they kind of um escape from right um that moment of the now cannot become a certain kind of queer future because the straight identified subject has in some ways foreclosed it. Yeah. So there's all of this kind of um, kind of tension between the temporality of queerness that actually ends up impacting the nature of blackness. And so throughout the book, I not only think about race, but also gender and sexuality, for example. The last thing I'll say is, you know, po- poets like Sonia Sanchez, by the time we get to the end of the 1960s, um, after, you know, after Baraka and, and King and, and um, and Malcolm X, Sonia Sanchez has a poem called, you know, Waiting, right? She says, all I have to do is wait. And in the background is a kind of gospel choir, I think, from New York singing, um, uh, I stood on the banks of the Jordan River, mm-hmm. right? As she's saying, all I have to do is wait. And she says, you got your rights, but what about mine? You made mm-hmm. your progress, but what about mine? And so even as I think about blackness writ large, there are, you know, to your question about identity, gender, sexuality, all these things are differently inflected by time as well. It's funny you mentioned um, uh, you mentioned Sanchez because it was she was in the back of my head when I was thinking about you know how to situate your uh, this this book in relation to you know how we characterize and approach and sort of big picture um, think about the civil rights movement and sort of is it a recentering or is it sort of cut up this idea of the yeah. center in the first place but. Now, I always think in these moments, uh, rather than, because I think it's kind of deconstructive, yeah, yeah, but yeah. I think less of Derrida and more of Sanchez, where she says mm-hmm. she's a poet with razors in her teeth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? It's right, like the, right. the words that come in, that's right. the breath that comes in, the breath that comes out is right. going through razors and, right. and pulling those things apart. But in the interest, as you said, of, of the present, right? Of, right? of a demand. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I think you're right. That's what I really love about, you know, part of what I want to do is to say, hey, listen, there's something after between african-american naturalism which is how we tend to organize our anthologies african-american naturalism realism and then the black arts movement mm-hmm. um and so i want to say that the civil rights period is is between there actually and, and cult- black culture is important but i love the the black arts movement precisely for this the notion of the blades uh the teeth right baraka i think at some point says poems should have teeth right they should bite mm-hmm. a part of what i'm interested in is how perhaps in the civil rights movement they aren't saying you know using the metaphors and the images of razors and teeth but they are producing art that bites, yeah. right? You know, th- this radical claim that we will not wait, that is a claim through theater that bites, even mm-hmm. as they aren't using those kind of more overt metaphors. Yeah. Um, just side note, um, my office when I was at Amherst College was Sonia Sanchez's former dining room. 
Wow. Because she used to live in the building wow. that got renovated to be the Department of Black Studies. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. She was one of the original members of the wow. department. But wow, wow, wow. She walked, I mean, she spent a lot of time in Amherst, Mass. And I remember and so one time she... Oh, your office was in what used to be her dining room? Yeah. <laughs> and I remember she walked by, she was on campus and walked by and, like, leaned in and told me that. And I was like... I gotta be a better scholar because this is like all of a sudden this office has like high stakes. That's right. Big shoes to fill. (laughs) I think you've lived up to it. I'll try. You're worthy of the dining room. (laughs) I do love Sanchez's uh, poetry. It's just fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So um, let me ask. I mean, this is kind of an obvious question, maybe, but um, I think it's a really important one, and it's one that I thought a lot about uh, reading your book and, and processing it. Which is, you know, how do you think? Uh, this notion of black patients, it's linked to time, that discourse, uh, the discourse of black patients, mm-hmm. is it still with us when we think about politics and activism? Mm-hmm. Or do you think we've, we've started to initiate a fairly serious break from it? And I ask that because, um, you know, discourse is discourse, right? Which is a ways of talking mm-hmm. become ways of being. Mm-hmm. And I think the book makes a really good uh, case that black patience is one discourse, and now you're uncovering this alternative discourse. Mm-hmm. And the temporalities that are, I, I love that dimension, that you're able to get such dimensionality over this this counter discourse mm-hmm. of, mm-hmm. of, of anti-patience. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wonder how you think about the place of, of black patience discourse in contemporary, whether it's mm-hmm. sort of black identity talk, um, whether it may be literature, music, or right. political activism. Like, how much is it with us, and how much do you think uh, we've really seen some uh, break from it? Yeah. So I think, you know, um, that if I'm honest, and I, I'm a pessimist who kind of leans toward optimism, if we're honest, black patience is still uh, as alive and well as it was during the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. I really think that our society is structured so that black people will always be asked to wait um, to become full citizens, Um, whatever historical moment we find ourselves in. And I think when it comes to things like the Voting Rights Act, um, Mm -hmm. some of the social safety net things that are held up in Congress, um, you know, the kind of vitriol circulating now regarding the first black woman who's been uh, nominated to the Supreme Court, (laughs) <laughs> who, who suddenly, being, having gone to Harvard Law School, is a negative. That's right. Out of nowhere. That's anyway, right. Sorry. That's right. It's like crazy. Yeah. And one, yeah, you know, senator is saying we should go with this woman who has a very an everyday degree from South Carolina, mm-hmm. you know, all of a sudden. Um, who backed, of course, other white men who, and white women, who, you know, white men in particular who had uh, these fancy degrees. So, you know, essentially, I think we, we still struggle with black patients. So the thing I'm not so sure about, though, in the book I write about, I end the book by actually talking about the sit-in and the gel-in, to think about how black people have actually turned patients on his head. Mm-hmm. Or how they have used waiting, right, as a kind of radical political and cultural strategy. Um, whether it's, you know, waiting for the right moment to escape slavery or thinking about Ralph Ellison, right, you know, sometimes black people are behind the beat, sometimes they're ahead of the beat. So it's an important kind of political and cultural tool. It was certainly important to the sit-in and the jail-in, right? I will outweigh your violence in this in the prison. Mm-hmm. And, and the, in the process kind of, um, kind of uh, soften the blow of your violence. I struggle with thinking about how much that kind of tactic works today, which is to say, where does a kind of radical black patience gets get us today. 
Mm-hmm. Um, where can it be enacted? Where can it be effective? Or versus those moments where we should just say, we want it now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something for me that's still unresolved. Yeah, I mean, it's <clears throat> the, I mean, it, this notion of black patience really did make me think about the complexity of sit-in as a yeah. form of protest. And, yeah. you know, I mean, I've, my adult life has been spent on college campuses yeah. and, you know, um, you know, there's when students want to protest something, it's right. so interesting the way right. the sit-in is like, that's what they believe that they should do. Right. And I think it's, it, it is a complicated thing because, you know, what your book revealed to me, I, I definitely hadn't thought of this until, until, until the book until, and, and really the phrase, the way it's this sense of patience that's mm-hmm. actually out of step with what, you know, radical activism was demanding. Yeah, right? It was actually right. the civil rights movement was right. largely impatience, that's right? right? But, that's but right. it gets cast as patience and the sit-in reenacts that. It also has this funny moment, I mean, this is less about your book, but just... Um, uh, it, you know, one thing I also took away from that is how, you know, when a a group of students sit in on a president's office, yeah. uh, the president has to be patient that's to right. wait out, and it drives them crazy. That's right. right? It that's right. Drives white. Uh, let's broaden it. Drives white people to crazy. That's right. Crazy to have to be patient. That's right. Which maybe says something about the relationship between patience and and freedom or, or that's sovereignty. Right. That's right. Now I have a chapter in the book that's about James Baldwin Blues and Mr. Charlie um, and about what I'm calling white impatience and kind of the irony of, of white people historically asking black people to be patient at the same time that they've been the most impatient folk. And so when Baldwin produced Blues and Mr. Charlie, um, people were livid um, with the running time of the play. And they were saying, hey, Baldwin, you have to cut the running time of this play down. People will leave the theater. And a part of what they didn't want to see was this kind of extended meditation on whiteness that Baldwin gives us in yeah. Blues and Mr. Charlie. And from New York to the play was also staged in, in, in London at the Aldrich Theater. And, you know, a group of conservative um, British uh, uh, audience members got up and made, kind of started a ruckus and walked out and went to a local bar to talk about how, you know, to trash the play, essentially. So there was a way in which these artists were not just interested in black patients. They were constantly, you know, saying, how can you ask us to be patient, even as white folk are the most impatient people in the world? Yeah, no, I love that. I mean, for me, I mean, that's, I mean, there are lots of things I love about the book. You know, I think most of all the emphasis on time. I uh, also really love just giving new readings of things that have either not been read or are not at the center. But I also love the way that, you know, as you were just saying, this notion of patience illuminates so many political dynamics. Yeah. Because, you know, we tend to think, I think we tend to have the big language of like white supremacy, white power, white identity, right. these sorts of things. But the introduction of something like patience and impatience mm. really gets so deep inside the affective dimension. Yeah, absolutely. Of, of both absolutely. Uh, assertion and resistance. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's one of the things I'm interested in the book is, you know, affect. So which, uh, it's a book about time. But the art of, other part of black patience for me is about affect, right? Well, you know, actually, Terry, you know, analytic uh, philosophers have thought about patience and virtue a lot and a part of what I take from them is kind of like this idea of of, of patience as suffering right and etymologically it means to to suffer um, and, a, and a part of that suffering is the waiting the temporal aspect of it but it's also about also about how you wait right because patience isn't waiting but saying hey I hate that I'm waiting patience is a kind of willful form of suffering and so for me in the book it's this kind of twinned model of the the, the affective right mm-hmm. the willingness to wait um, but also the weight itself is time. Yeah. And so you're right, the affect is right there. And I think a part of what the sit-in does, for example, is to turn that kind of affective violence on his head. And so when SNCC activists are 
kind of training for the demonstrations and they're hitting each other, they're burning each other with cigarettes, they're pulling hair. A part of what they're doing is kind of rerouting our kind of human affective tendencies, mm -hmm. which is to say, let's not get angry to this uh, in response to this action, right? But politically and for kind of radical politics, we have to learn to, to be patient and to suppress that anger. So there are all these kind of experiments with affect, not just time, but also affect mm -hmm. as a part of black patients and black inpatients. It's amazing to think about something like SNCC trainings and then hear people say, like, this was like a, you know, a sort of passive oh, movement yes, or yes, something. I'm like, wait yes, a minute now. Like, this is like, this is serious shit to undergo. Serious, yeah. Because yeah. I don't think I would let anyone burn me with a cigarette to prepare for a lunch counter sit-in. Yeah, no, the the actual, uh, all that training around that stuff. Yeah, yeah And then what, when, and people acting on it, the levels of, like, courage and will. Absolutely. And, and knowledge and, you know, which one can be critical of, obviously, or, or right. have nuanced takes on. But, uh, That's right. But these were not, um, you know, conciliatory folks. That's right. These were. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> these were people who are kind of, like, post-human in their, in, their, in their training. And Absolutely. And they have to become something other than certainly what I am. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. But, uh that's the whole point. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> to interrupt you're, you're time. Right. You're right. You're right. And I think that's radical, right? Especially if I love Fred Moon's kind of framing of radicalism as a movement against the proper or a movement against the norm. And, mm -hmm. and I try to keep that as my kind of thinking about radicalism across the book, right? And, and Robin D.G. Kelly says, in fact, you know, radical art isn't that art that, that we normally think about as radical, right? It's the, 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 the art that introduces new ways of feeling and new ways of mm -hmm. thinking. And ultimately, even though some might question, you know, some, a figure like Duke Ellington or King or some of these people who might not immediately seem radical, if we keep those understandings of radicalism in mind, a movement against the proper, against the norm, new ways of thinking, new ways of feeling, um, I think that these political and cultural actors in the book are, are actually radical. I like that. I really like that a lot. So let me ask um, uh, a couple of final questions, yeah. one one f about readers to start with. Yeah. Um, you, know, uh, you know, what I always say about anything I publish is like my... My dream is, uh, my nightmare is that uh, no one will read it. <laughs> my uh, nightmare is also that someone will that's read someone it. Read it. <laughs> and so there's like, you know, I have that. I, st I still have the moment. Someone's like, "Oh, I read your book," and I just am like, "Can I leave?" Yeah, no, no. Where's the closest exit? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then even if they have something nice to say, it's anxiety producing. Yeah. But yeah. part of you know what's anxiety producing about like publishing a book and someone reads it is, you know, that's part of the hermeneutic event is it right. becomes theirs, right? right. And, that's and, right. They, and they take from it what they want right. and they engage from their own subject position, their own intellectual framing and their own commitments. That's right. Um, but at the same time, we as authors don't write with that level of release, right? right? In the sense that we do write with the desire that our readers move away from our book in a different way yeah and i say like walk away or move away rather than what's the takeaway that's right because i think takeaways are these sort of sound bites walk away or, like or move away is like your body your sensibilities are changed I like right I like and so when you think about this book being bought right and read and thought about you know, what do you what do you hope Right, rather than want or, or demand, right? So you're not an imperialist, but what do you hope that readers walk away with and move away with? Like, how do you want that to impact their sensibilities? Yeah. That's a big question. Yeah, <laughs> That's yeah, an yeah. important question. Um, 
So I kind of at a surface level, I want them to walk away from this book knowing that theater was important to the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. And by turning to theater, we can know new things about this movement that we've studied for so long. The kind of more global, I guess, macro desire for me um, is that people actually in black study as a practice, as a verb, right, actually kind of move away from abstract um, experimentations mm -hmm. with the idea of blackness this kind of immaterial blackness is kind of this immaterial thing uh -huh. um, toward a kind of black study of practice that is actually rooted in the archive. Mm -hmm. A black study that is actually rooted in what black people have done, what black people have said, what have black people thought, how have they felt. And I think a part of what this book is, is a dedication to taking to black people and their thinking and their feelings and taking seriously how they view their own sense of being, right? Because I, I could, you know, if I go to a place like Mississippi, the, what I call the kind of bastion of racial terror or kind of, kind of the ground zero of black patients, uh -huh. if I bring a certain analytic to that geography, it can be one of, of, of deficit, doom and gloom. It can be one of the ontology of the slave, right? But once I start to actually go to those archives, a very different picture emerges. And so more than anything, this is what I want that black people um, actually ground our our thinking about other black folk and black studies scholars in general ground our thinking about black folk and in, in, in the archives that they have left behind. I love that. I And I, I have to say, I do think the book has that effect. Mm -hmm. Right. I, and and that, uh, it's hard to walk away from the book and not not take that with you so mm -hmm. I, I, would, I would chalk that up as a, a likely victory <laughs> Thank you. but it's it's hugely different because what you're you know and not to reduce what you're saying right but in some ways what you're saying is like you know these are reminders that black people are human beings absolutely human absolutely. beings don't live in, in as abject space absolutely. absolutely they do make perform you know? absolutely for sure so what about you you know because I you know, when we talk about books, I think there's a myth that everyone who has written a book knows is is, is complete bullshit, yeah. which is that a book is like a snapshot of your big ideas. Mm -hmm. We write books, we have a big idea, maybe we have a title and some outlines, and we write. Yeah. And But, you know, the process of writing and editing and, and getting criticism and revising and all of that... I mean, it is a full process. Yeah, uh, you yeah, know, yeah. just like it's an existential process right. and it affects your life just to sit and take the time of composition, the self-esteem risks, and all of that. Right, right. But also, when you write a book, you discover. I mean, I remember one of my undergraduate teachers said to me when I said I couldn't write, uh, but I had great ideas, and he was like, "There's no such thing as great ideas until right. you write." That's right. And I was like, "What do you mean?" He goes, "Well, when you start writing." your ideas will completely change. For sure. Right? Whether it's deeper, broader, or just different. So when we write books, as you know, right, we it's a it's a it's a it's a journey of our own transformation. Right. In the same way that when we read we have a journey of transformation. So what about you? How do you walk away from this book? This is like both like how the composition of the book changed your own sensibilities or altered them or shifted them or however you want to put it. And also, if you want to talk about sort of where where do you go from here, whether it's future projects or just the questions that the book leaves you with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the book has um, humbled me uh, in many ways. It, it, it's made me re um, 
realize because I, I think I've spent so much of my early career um, kind of buying into the logic that this is a kind of you work in silos this is an individualist um, profession but if it weren't for community right if it weren't for Bob Moses saying hey have you heard about the Free Southern Theater if it weren't for my um, graduate school advisors my colleagues here at Maryland who have read parts of it um, the book wouldn't exist and so I think you know a, a, these people in the book were always working in community right to shift the kind of terrain of black political possibility and I think writing the book about them has also kind of left me with a great appreciation for community and even now right I'm only talking about this book because you invited me to be on this <laughs> podcast right so I can write this thing but if I never have an opportunity to talk about it um, the ideas can, can, can kind of stay within the covers of the book and so it, it gave me a greater appreciation for community um, in terms of where I'm going next I have two projects one is a kind of one is a project that asks, you know, have we kind of, in moving away from the nation state, um, who do we leave behind? Um, mm -hmm. And this kind of fetish for the transnational and the international. Another project grows directly out of this book, and it's a project about outer space. And so I write about how, in the book, in Black Patients, about how, at the same time, Dwight Eisenhower was establishing NASA, right? And mm -hmm. investing billions of dollars in spaceships and kind of destroying temporal and spatial boundaries. He's asking black people to go slow. So also I'm working on a project that kind of turns to outer spaces as the kind of um, logical next phase of colonialism huh. as decolonization um, and independence are happening. Um, and But thinking about the kind of violence of the enterprise, but also thinking about how in places like Zambia and Martinique, black people also had visions of space exploration, mm -hmm. where spaceships would be fueled by the poetry of Césaire, right? Or rather than, you know, technology. Or in Zambia, for example, they say once we get to Mars, we're not going to treat the aliens like uh, white folks treated us or the Native Americans when they colonized the New World. So uh -huh. these alternative visions of, of outer space as well. Huh. I, I can't wait. <laughs> I'll get it written, you know. <laughs> so I always ask, you know, it's like a thing I always ask at the end of these conversations because it's curious how people's um, uh, sensibilities are changed mm. in new projects. And I always get really impatient about yeah. these new projects because I'm like, I want to see what you have to say. About it. <laughs> but I, you know, it is a, it's a whole event. But that's a fantastic project. Man, I love the book. I think it's Thank super you. smart. I think it it's it shifts a lot of paradigms. I think the centering of time in uh, rather than space is transformative for Black studies and Thank and, you. and, and Black Thank literature. You. Um, uh, but uh, this conversation has just been fantastic. I just I've enjoyed um, it. Yeah. yeah, I think like, it really represent you. It really represents the depth of the book really well. I'm, I'm happy we had a chance to talk yeah. about it. Yeah, no, it's been great. Thanks for the invitation to be here. I'm looking forward to Baldwin and the Black Atlantic. We'll see. Yeah, <laughs> I just need this pandemic to end so I can go sit at coffee shops. Right. That's the only way I can get stuff done. Right. right. So um, thanks so much. And with these, uh, when this new project comes out, we'll uh, talk about that again. Sounds so. good. Thanks, John. All right. Take care. All right.